Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. I'm Dee Dee West, and this is Broken Limelight. Thanks for joining me again today. In this episode, we're going to be talking about the queen of Tejano music, Selena Quintanilla. Before we get into that, I want to talk about what happened this last Friday, November 5th, 2021, at the Astral World Music Festival. Astral World was founded by Travis Scott, who is a rapper, singer, and music producer. He's also the father of Kylie Jenner's children. The tickets for the 2021 festival went on sale in 2019, and they sold out within 30 minutes. In the past, the event has only been a one-day event, but this year they were going to make it a two-day event, taking place on November 5th and November 6th. Due to the events that occurred, they ended up canceling it after the November 5th performance, so it didn't go on to November 6th. Things got hectic pretty much from the very beginning. People started rushing a VIP entrance and things were getting knocked down, including people and metal detectors. There's footage where you can see people, like, stampeding, and a few of them stopped to help the ones who have fallen. One person was reportedly injured during this rush. There were more than 50,000 people at this music festival. The place was absolutely packed, and people just kept pouring in. Shortly before Travis Scott was about to start a set, they played a giant timer on the big screen that started at 30 seconds and counted down until the start of the concert. At this point, the audience started to push forward as if everybody was trying to get to the front. People started shoving each other forward and then people would push back. So the audience is just kind of like pushing back and forth on each other. People reported feeling intense pressure against their backs and their chests. They were literally getting crushed. And when the audience would push back, a lot of people would lose their balance. When Travis Scott started performing, things just got more chaotic. The crowd continued to push forward, and a lot of people started jumping up and down and dancing. And they also started moshing, so that just caused more people to lose their balance and fall. While some people were falling on the floor, others were literally suffocating from the pressure of the crowd and started to pass out. If you don't know what moshing is, it's better known among rock concerts. It's kind of like dancing, but it's like, there's a lot of like shoving and pushing each other in a crowd. It's hard to explain, but it's typically not like as reckless as it sounds. I used to go to concert as a teenager, and sometimes you might get someone pushed into you, or someone might spill a beer or something, but for the most part, I don't think I've ever seen anything get dangerous or violent. Now, that's not to say that it doesn't happen. But a lot of times in a mosh pit, there's sort of an, like, etiquette where If somebody falls, you pick them up. It's like an unspoken rule. Well, I didn't know this, but moshing has apparently become a thing within the hip-hop and rap community. From what I've read, it's common at Travis Scott shows to see people moshing or, quote, raging at these shows. I know that probably made me sound like 100 years old, but, like, I'm so bad with modern music, so go ahead and call me out if I said something wrong and, like, please correct me. 
Anyway, Travis Scott shows are known for being really high energy, and he really tries to pump up the crowd. So while all these people were falling on the floor, the crowd continued to push forward and mosh and trample the people on the ground. Some people reported falling down, and then others just were piling on top of them. Others recall going in and out of consciousness while getting pushed among the crowd. One person passed out, and the audience actually crowd-surfed her to safety. But for the most part, there were a lot of reports of people looking at the people who were on the ground, and then just continuing to sing and dance along to the music. Some people noticed that it was getting out of control before the performance even started, but it was too late and there was just no way out. Then people realized that some people were actually dying. There are reports of audience members going in and out of consciousness and hearing people crying and screaming for help with Travis Scott singing in the background. Travis Scott apparently didn't realize what was happening for a while. I mean, it said that he took pauses to like ask what was happening, but he didn't, he didn't stop for a while. During the short breaks in between songs, people try to shout at him to stop the show. They try to shout at security guards and camera crew to make him stop and get help. But it was entirely too loud, and there were reportedly not enough staff in place. Paramedics were there, but they couldn't reach everyone in the audience. Medical professionals went around the audience and tried to resuscitate people, and some people who were in the audience actually tried to help and give CPR to the people who were on the ground as well. But there wasn't nearly enough help for the amount of people that needed it, and the people who were helping just didn't have access to treat all of those people. So Travis Scott finally noticed the ambulance in the audience and stopped the performance. There's a video of this moment, I'll upload it to the website. They ended the event early. Hundreds of people were injured, including a 10-year-old child who was in critical condition. It was said some like 300 people went to the hospital nearby. 13 people remain hospitalized, including 5 minors. 8 people died. Their ages range from 14 to 27 years old. Travis Scott tweeted that he is absolutely devastated by what took place. He says, My prayers go out to the families and all those impacted by what happened at Astroworld Festival. Houston PD has my total support as they continue to look into the tragic loss of life. I am committed to working together with the Houston community to heal and support the families in need. Thank you to Houston PD, Fire Department, and NRG Park for their immediate response and support. He's also vowed to issue refunds to the concertgoers, and he has decided to cancel his performance here in Las Vegas that's scheduled for this Saturday the 13th, stating that he's, quote, too distraught to play. I don't know about you guys, but this is so scary to me. And I mean, I'm a singer, and I sing for rock bands. So of course I don't want to say don't go to concerts, but man, people are ruthless. It's like it's like it's Black Friday, except people just want to get closer to the stage. And the concert holders fully anticipated this amount of people, but didn't seem to take enough precautions to prevent this. Especially since this isn't the first time something like this has happened at a concert, even at Astroworld. Just two years ago at the 2019 Astroworld event, Three people were trampled and hospitalized as a result of a pushy crowd. Did they take any precautions to keep that from happening again? Because if they did, they obviously weren't effective. And I'll be honest, I don't know a lot about Travis Scott, but I know that there are a lot of people who blame him for this because he seems to have a history of riling up the crowd to the point of serious injuries occurring. So now people are questioning how this kind of thing can happen again at a Travis Scott concert, and each time there are more injuries. There have also been reports that someone in the audience may have been injecting people with drugs. There's a police officer who was reaching for an audience member, 
when suddenly he was poked in the neck before he collapsed and lost consciousness. There are also reports that Narcan was administered to multiple people, which is typically used to revive people in instances of overdose. All of this is still being investigated. They are reviewing the footage to find out if the venue had adequate exit routes and to figure out what exactly caused the surge. This isn't the first time that a dangerous situation like this has happened at a Travis Scott event. In 2015, he did an interview with GQ titled How to Rage with Travis Scott, and in that interview, he said that he wants his concerts to be like the WWF. That same year at Lollapalooza in Chicago, he was charged with disorderly conduct after he encouraged fans to jump barriers and rush the stage. As a result, a security guard, a police officer, and several others were injured. In 2017, during a concert in New York City, Travis Scott encouraged a fan to jump down from the second floor balcony. He said, I see you, but are you going to do it? And then he said, they're going to catch you. Don't be scared. Don't be scared. Meanwhile, just above on the third floor balcony, there was a guy named Kyle Green who was 27 years old, and he was pushed off the balcony, leaving him partially paralyzed. Kyle Green filed a lawsuit against Travis Scott and the other organizers of the event, claiming that he was dragged off the floor by show staff, quote, without a cervical collar, backboard, and other safety precautions, according to his lawyer. I don't want to say that this is all Travis Scott's fault. Of course, this kind of accident has actually happened multiple times in history. I mentioned before how at rock concerts I've been to, people tend to have a kind of etiquette, but that's not to say that that's a rule. I mean, it's not like... It's not fair to say it's the rap music's fault. No, that's not accurate. I'm sure, like with any other music genre, there are people trying to have fun responsibly, and there are people who just want to rage and don't give a fuck who they take down on the way. And that goes for any group of people, really. In 1979, there was a disaster at a concert for The Who in Cincinnati, where the audience also rushed the venue and multiple people were trampled, costing the lives of 11 people. This also happened in 2009 at a music festival in Morocco, and again at the Love Parade in Germany in 2010. Another notable case of this was in 1994 in Dallas, Texas at a concert for the Tejano music star Selena Quintanilla. With that said, let's talk about Selena's life, starting from the very beginning. As I'm sure you know, there are lots of movies and books and documentaries about Selena. Of course, there's the 1997 film Selena starring Jennifer Lopez. That movie's pretty awesome. Also, Netflix released a series about Selena in 2020. It's really good. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. In fact, Selena's sister Suzette was one of the writers and executive producers of the show. So I think that you can feel good while watching it, knowing that the story being told is accurate. And it also includes cute little details that, like, only the family or someone close to the band would know. With that said, this story has been retold and retold in the media, so it's very likely that a lot of people listening may already know a lot of the details in this case. I will say, I worked really hard to find additional details that aren't so commonly known. And bitch, let me tell you, that was not easy. But I think I did a pretty good job at filling in the gaps, and I'm confident that this episode is going to bring you guys some new information about Selena and her death. One of the things I really wanted to find out about, and I know some people are going to come at me for this, but... I really wanted to know more about Selena's killer, Yolanda Saldivar. I know, I know, some of you are probably going, nobody cares about Yolanda, and I get that. Believe me, 
I'm not here to celebrate her. I'll never understand that. I'll never be the type of person to like wear a t-shirt with a serial killer's face on them or something. I think that's distasteful as fuck. But I'm super interested in criminal psychology. And one thing that was never really explained was whether or not Yolanda Saldivar had a history of violence or mental illness or of stalking or idolizing celebrities. So I'm sorry if you don't give a fuck about Yolanda, but I need to understand why this bitch did what she did and what compelled her to kill her best and only friend. I am in no way attempting to empathize with Yolanda Saldivar, so please, if you don't want to hear it, just skip over that part. Well, Selena Quintanilla was born on April 16, 1971 to Marcelo Zamora and Abraham Quintanilla. Selena was the youngest of three kids. She had an older sister, Suzette, and an older brother, Abraham, who went by A.B. The family was Jehovah's Witness, so they didn't celebrate holidays like birthdays. Selena's father, Abraham, had a band in his younger days called Los Dinos, like in the 50s and 60s, but it didn't do very well. The band experienced racism and discrimination due to being of Mexican descent, A club owner who thought the band was Italian was surprised to learn that Los Dinos were Mexican-Americans and refused to pay them. The band was also turned down for motel rooms and other venues in predominantly white neighborhoods. Los Dinos played music in English, and the Latino crowd was really disappointed to find out that they didn't know a single song in Spanish. At one show, the crowd actually called them queers and chased them out of the venue, and the club owners had to refund the audience's money. So Los Dinos kind of rebranded and shifted to playing Chicano rock music. By 1967, Abraham and Marcelo were getting ready to have their second child, Suzette, and Los Dinos' popularity was really declining, so Abraham left the band. Abraham started working full-time, and in 1970, Marcelo went to the doctor and was told that she had a tumor and it would have to be removed immediately. Before agreeing to surgery, they got a second opinion. It turned out that she didn't have a tumor. She was actually pregnant. They were told this baby was going to be a boy, so they planned for a boy, and they named him Mark Anthony. But on April 16, 1971, Marcella gave birth to a baby girl who she then named Selena. When Selena was six years old, Abraham was giving her brother, A.B., a guitar lesson, and she walked in and started singing along. He instantly noticed her talent and was like, oh my god, she's gifted. He wasted no time and immediately started focusing on developing her into a singer. So Abraham basically got all the kids together and was like, A.B., you're on bass, Suzette, you're on drums. He called them Selena y Los Dinos, and he had a friend in the music business who helped him record some songs to get them started. In 1979, Abraham opened up his own restaurant called Papagayos, and he built a stage for his kids to perform. Unfortunately, they were forced to close the restaurant following the recession of 1981, and this is when they relocated to Corpus Christi. The band started taking on any gig they could. They would perform at parties, at fairs, on street corners, anything that would pay anything. When Selena was in 8th grade, a teacher confronted her parents saying that she disproved of Selena's music career. Apparently, numerous teachers had noticed that Selena was super tired at school, and the one teacher threatened to report them to the Board of Education. Abraham told her to mind her business and withdrew Selena from school to be homeschooled. She ended up earning her high school diploma at just 17 years old. The family had this refurbished bus that they called Big Bertha, and they would travel from gig to gig in it, barely making enough money for food and often not making enough for gas. Selena really wanted to sing songs in English, but Abraham insisted that she should sing songs from her heritage. 
And I can only imagine that this has something to do with his band being booed and chased off stage for not knowing any songs in Spanish. As a Latina American, I've been there when your parents are like, everyone knows that you can speak English and nobody cares. Say something in Spanish because that'll impress them. He was probably thinking, you can sing in English later once you're known and loved and have a fan base. But right now, you need to blow these people's minds and get on their radar. Recently, somebody actually told me, you need to show your heritage because there are Latinas out there who, who really need role models. And when they see you up there, they know it's possible for a Latina to make it big. And I think that's exactly what Selena did. Everything about her look and her performance was very much embracing her Latino heritage. So I can kind of understand where Abraham's coming from. And this is probably one of those things that Selena and her siblings were like, my dad's an old head and doesn't know what's cool. But he actually must have learned the hard way that playing what's cool to them as kids isn't always what's going to make you stand out. And furthermore, isn't what the community needs. And I think this is one reason that Selena was so loved. Like she really touched her community. I mean, all, out of all the stars out there, how many Tejano musicians do you listen to? Probably none, unless, you know, you're Latino. But but seeing how big she got with the English-speaking community, I mean, she must have really provided a sense of hope for the Latino community, and she legit united these communities. And I think Abraham saw that coming from early on. Anyway, Selena learned to sing songs in Spanish, and she would eventually learn to speak it. Selena was discovered by musician Rudy Trevino. He was the founder of the Tejano Music Awards, where she won the Female Vocalist of the Year Award in, 19, in 1987 and for nine consecutive years afterwards. Interestingly, a lot of venues turned down the band because they were so young. And furthermore, everyone thought Selena was out of place because she was a woman and Tejano music was very male-dominated. In fact, there were no female Tejano singers other than Selena. In 1989, Jose Bahar of EMI Latin Records saw the band perform at the Tejano Music Awards, and he instantly wanted to sign Selena. He said that she was going to be the next Gloria Estefan. They also wanted her to do a crossover album in English. As the band's success continued to climb, Chris Perez was asked to join. Chris was a guitarist who was pretty punk rock compared to the rest of the band. Abraham wasn't very fond of him. He thought he was kind of a machista or a chauvinist. He also didn't like his heavy metal vibe, and he made him cut his hair before he joined the band. In 1990, Chris and his buddies from his former band were staying at a hotel, and they ended up getting drunk and trashing it. Abraham was pissed, and he threatened to fire him. Fortunately, Selena's brother AB urged him to reconsider since they had a tour coming up and they really needed him. Chris actually had a girlfriend when he joined the band, but he and Selena started to develop romantic feelings for each other. He initially thought it would be best to keep a distance from her, but after that proved to be difficult, the two started dating secretly. They hid their relationship from everyone because they were afraid that if Abraham found out, he would break them up. Well, long story short, they weren't able to hide it for long. First, her siblings would walk in on them being all touchy and smoochy. Suzette straight up went and told Abraham on them. So Abraham forbade them from being together. But they continued to sneak around, and eventually... Abraham would see them together. Abraham lost his shit and basically told him that they weren't allowed to see each other anymore, and if they disobeyed him, that would be the end of the band. Selena was really, really hurt. The band was pretty much her whole life, so she couldn't have a boyfriend or do anything on her own really that wasn't related to the band. Everything she did had a direct consequence to the band. Plus, Selena and Chris were in love by this point, 
I mean, they tried to stay apart and they couldn't. So Selena decided that she wanted to marry Chris and her father would just have to deal with it after the fact. Selena and Chris snuck off to elope in April of 1992. They really wanted to keep this a secret and just something special between the two of them, at least until they could, like, find a way to tell Abraham about it. Unfortunately, someone saw them at the courthouse and within, like, an hour, or it might have been, like, a few hours, but not very long after, they heard on the radio about their secret wedding. They were super scared about how Abraham was going to take it. And Abraham ended up kind of isolating himself for a while. Apparently, he was afraid that Chris was a chauvinist and that he was going to use or mistreat Selena. Eventually, he came out and apologized to Chris and accepted him back into the band and into the family. On November 26, 1994, Selena y Los Dinos performed a concert in Houston, Texas. Selena was peaking at this point. Everyone fucking adored her. And at this particular concert, the crowd got a little out of control. The audience started shoving each other. Everyone tried to get closer to the stage and get a better view of Selena. The force of the crowd pushing everyone forward was causing the stage to get weak and begin to collapse. Some people got pressed up right up against the stage and almost even got pushed underneath it. By the way, this was shown in the movie with Jennifer Lopez. It just happened a little bit differently. Chris Perez has stated that it was a lot scarier than it was portrayed in the movie. Which, like, it was pretty fucking scary in the movie. I uploaded a clip showing this moment from the actual concert in 1994. It's on BrokenLimelight.com if you want to check it out. Selena started talking to the audience and tried to calm them down. She asked them to stop pushing. She was saying things like, everybody stay calm, we're all here to have fun. You guys want to hear some music, right? Okay, let's all settle down so we can keep going. The crowd just continued to push and shove. And finally, you see Selena talking to Abraham and the band. And that's when Selena and the band leave the stage. Then Abraham and some other guys started pulling people from the audience onto the stage. Like, I think they were getting crushed against each other or against or under the stage. So they started pulling people onto the stage who then exited the stage. It's a hectic scene. I really recommend that you go on the website and check out that clip. That same year, in 1994, that was the year that Selena began designing and manufacturing a line of clothing. She opened up two boutiques called Selena, etc. One was in Corpus Christi and the other was in San Antonio. Both were equipped with in-house beauty salons. By the end of 1994, Selena, etc. had held two fashion shows to showcase the clothing line. Selena and her band held a concert after the second fashion show on December 3, 1994 at the Hemisphere Arena in San Antonio. At this time, she started negotiations to open up more stores in Monterey, Mexico and in Puerto Rico. At this time, Selena had hired a personal assistant named Yolanda Saldivar. Yolanda would become the manager of Selena's boutiques in Corpus Christi and San Antonio. Now, let's talk about Yolanda Saldivar a bit. Yolanda Saldivar was originally a registered nurse who would become the president of Selena's fan club. You may be surprised to find out that Yolanda wasn't actually a violent, angry kind of person. Yolanda Saldivar was born to Juana and Frank Saldivar in 1960. She was the youngest of eight kids, and while her parents doted on her, she was kind of the runt of the family. Her father had a decent job as head waiter of a restaurant, but his income was pretty low for having to support a family of ten. Because of their financial struggles, the family moved a lot, always looking for deals on rent. As a result, the kids changed schools a lot. Yolanda went to three different elementary schools and multiple middle and high schools. 
Yolanda was really short and chubby, and she was also introverted and spoke with a very soft, mousy voice. She got teased a lot by her peers, and she had a really hard time making friends. This was especially hard when she kept switching schools. With every new school, she retreated into herself more and more. They call this fear of peer rejection, and according to psychologists, this can create extreme withdrawal and loneliness and result in major issues into adulthood. So Yolanda grew more and more isolated over the years, never making any real friends. By high school, she was only 5 feet tall and overweight, and she felt completely invisible. Except when she was being bullied. She had really, really low self-esteem, and while she always longed for friendship, she was really awkward and always embarrassed and just felt more and more humiliated the more she tried to connect to anyone. In 1979, when Yolanda was 18, she enrolled at the community college and started the path to becoming a registered nurse. Unfortunately, Yolanda wouldn't be able to focus on her schoolwork enough to finish the program in the normal amount of time. One of her brothers got into legal trouble, and he had three kids who Yolanda couldn't bear to let anything happen to. So she took in the kids and became their legal guardian. Yolanda adored these kids, but she was not financially prepared to take care of them. So she got a job in a dermatologist's office to help provide for them. She was so busy at work, though, that her schoolwork suffered. And because she was trying so hard to fit her schoolwork in, she wasn't able to shine in her job either. So she was in constant self-doubt, feeling like she was never enough. She really, really just needed some extra money to level her out. Yolanda had access to the business accounts at her job, and she couldn't stop thinking about that. One day in 1983, her boss finally noticed that $9,200 were missing. He sued Yolanda, and she was able to settle out of court, but of course she lost her job. She then transferred to the University of Texas. In 1990, at 29 years old, she finally got her nursing degree after 10 years. She started working two separate jobs, one in the day at a hospice with terminally ill cancer patients, and one working the evening shift at a hospital. She was a very, very dedicated and hard worker. She got along with her co-workers just fine, but nobody would ever invite her out for drinks or to hang out with her after work with the rest of them. So Yolanda continued to struggle with feelings that she's not enough. Admittedly, Yolanda never tried to connect with her co-workers either, I imagine out of fear of rejection. So Yolanda spent all of her free time hanging out with her nieces and nephews. One day, her niece begged her to take her to a Selena concert. Yolanda was hesitant. She actually didn't want to go. She was also kind of like, who is this woman trying to sing Tejano music? That's for men. But Yolanda hated to disappoint people, so she obliged. As soon as 19-year-old Selena got on stage, Yolanda's attitude completely changed. She was mesmerized. Selena was absolutely sensational and like the complete polar opposite of Yolanda. It's believed that at this moment, Yolanda had found something to finally be happy about. She was tired of focusing on her own mundane existence, and instead, she was now going to fixate on beautiful, spectacular Selena. Yolanda just could not look away. After the concert, Yolanda went to the lobby to buy merchandise, but when she got there, there was no Selena merch for sale. Yolanda was shocked because, what a lost opportunity. I mean, Every musician has merch, and even if the musician's team doesn't sell it themselves, there's usually a fan club that sells merch for them. But Yolanda looked, and there was seemingly nobody out there selling Selena merch and no existing fan club. As she was standing in that lobby, she got an idea. 
If she started a Selena fan club, she could meet Selena and maybe be a part of her life. Once that idea was in her mind, there was no getting rid of it. Yolanda was determined and she pounced on Suzette when she saw her. She pitched her idea of a fan club and Suzette heard her out, but ultimately all those decisions were left up to Abraham. Suzette gave her his number and according to Yolanda, she called him three times before he agreed to meet with her. According to Abraham, she actually called him more like 15 times. Either way, she eventually was able to meet with him. Shockingly, Abraham thought she was cool. Abraham normally didn't trust anyone outside of the family with business stuff, but something about her just seemed trustworthy. According to Chris Perez, he thinks it was her appearance. She was just so utterly non-threatening, and she wasn't like a hyped-up teenager who just wanted to be close to the spotlight. Yolanda was like this humble little lady who seemed to be a legitimate fan. So Abraham agreed, and Yolanda became the president of the new Selena fan club. Yolanda now had a new purpose in life. Running the fan club was pretty easy. Yolanda was responsible for sending out a newsletter with Selena's tour dates, and anyone who sent in a $22 membership fee would also receive merchandise. Yolanda threw herself into the fan club and hoped and hoped that she would get to meet Selena. After six months, her hard work paid off and she finally got to meet her in December of 1991. This was like pure bliss for Yolanda. Selena was even more dazzling in person and Yolanda became obsessed. Selena really liked Yolanda and she started to really trust her. She started giving her more personal responsibilities like asking her to chauffeur her around town and even started inviting Yolanda to hang out with her like at the mall or they would go get mani-pedis together. By the way, Yolanda looks like she's a lot older than Selena, but truthfully, she's only about 10 or 11 years older. Like, based on their appearances, I think a lot of people think that Yolanda saw herself like a mother figure to Selena. But when Selena died, she was 23 and Yolanda was only 34. Selena and Yolanda were actual friends now. Yolanda's family says that Selena would also go to their house and visit and that she was always very kind and humble. Selena trusted Yolanda. She was her confidant. Now for Yolanda, this is the first time ever that she's had a real friend. She's never had anything close to this kind of friendship, and this wasn't just any old friend, this was fucking Selena. She was glamorous and the entire world loved her. And Yolanda, in her head, she's like, what on earth is she doing with frumpy little me? She couldn't believe that Selena would give her the time of day. Yolanda had this deep-rooted fear that Selena would figure her out to be this lame-ass nobody and eventually would dump her. She really started to worry, and she was determined to keep that from happening. She would do whatever it took to stay on Selena's good side. So in 1993, when Selena asked her to be her personal assistant, she jumped at the chance. Yolanda quit both of her jobs and moved out to Corpus Christi to invest herself fully into being a part of Selena's inner circle. It didn't matter that it took her an entire decade for her to get her degrees. Her nursing career didn't come close to the glamour of being Selena's personal assistant. Yolanda threw herself into her work. It seems to me that she has a really, really good work ethic, and maybe that's just because she's always been longing for some kind of acknowledgement, some kind of recognition, just for anybody to notice her and tell her, hey, good job, I appreciate you. So she was seemingly a fantastic assistant to Selena. The fan club had thousands of members, so Abraham was thrilled. The whole family really took Yolanda in and started inviting her to private gatherings. When Selena's sister Suzette got married, Yolanda was actually in her bridal party. She really was like part of the family. Now that Yolanda had left her life behind and relocated to Corpus Christi, 
Her whole life became about Selena. Literally. Not only did she leave her whole career and everything to move and be closer to her and be her assistant, but she also filled her entire apartment with photos of Selena. I'm talking pictures all over the wall, Selena merch everywhere. There was even a life-size cardboard cutout of Selena. Basically, her apartment was a shrine. It's said that these are signs that Yolanda had celebrity worship syndrome. According to psychologists, people with this are more prone to fantasies and dissociating from reality and are more likely to engage in stalking. Yolanda was not aware of any problem, though. She wasn't a deranged fan. She was just Selena's closest friend. And that may have been true, but Yolanda's perspective of this friendship was getting really twisted. She was always around Selena. Like, if you look at pictures of Selena at events, a lot of times you can see Yolanda standing right there in front of her or right behind her, like, lingering. If anyone wanted to talk to Selena, they had to go through Yolanda first. It was like she was literally placing herself as a barrier between Selena and anybody else. As Selena's success increased, Yolanda became more and more paranoid that she was going to lose Selena, or that Selena would ditch her for somebody more interesting. If Selena gave anyone else attention, Yolanda instantly felt threatened. Yolanda really used her position as Selena's personal assistant to kind of build a wall around Selena. In her head, she was just protecting the friendship. With Selena getting busier and busier, she just didn't see how controlling Yolanda was becoming. In fact, in her eyes, things were going so well that when Selena decided to open up her own boutique, there was only one person that she trusted to oversee the day-to-day -day activities, and that was Yolanda. Yolanda, who is now 33, was promoted to manager of the boutique. When Selena opened up her second location in San Antonio, she asked Yolanda to oversee that location as well. With this new promotion, Yolanda was given a raise, as well as her own credit card and cell phone to use for business purposes. Selena felt so confident about this decision, she actually told her husband, If I can't be there for any reason, I feel better knowing that Yolanda will be there to take care of it. But Yolanda actually had no business experience and was way in over her head. She wouldn't admit it, but she had no idea what she was doing. Right off the bat, Yolanda had tension with Selena's fashion designer. His name was Martin Gomez. They didn't like each other from the get-go. Yolanda was seemingly feeling threatened by Martin and his seamstresses, and she would yell at them and boss them around for every little thing. She would gaslight the employees about events that never happened, and she would fire anybody who disagreed with her. Martin thought that Yolanda was manipulative and controlling. He also claimed that she ruined some of his designs. He said that he would finish up a dress and he would be certain that it was finished, and then the next day, he would come back and find that the seams had been ripped out. He eventually warned Selena about Yolanda and told her that the employees were threatening to quit and that he would be the next to quit himself. Selena really couldn't believe it, though. Yolanda was her friend, and her confidant, and it just didn't make any sense. She was sure that there must have been some kind of misunderstanding. When Yolanda found out that Martin went to Selena to complain, she was livid. She started secretly recording her conversations with Martin and trying to get him to say something incriminating so that she could bring it to Selena. She never ended up using the tapes, though. Martin actually ended up refusing to work there as long as Yolanda was in charge. He demanded that Selena buy him out of his contract. Selena agreed, and Yolanda got what she wanted. Before Martin left, he warned Selena, It's just weird how she tries to get in between you and everyone else. She's obsessed with you, and I'm a little scared of her. Yolanda's obsession intensified. 
Her need for Selena's attention became all-consuming, and Yolanda even tried to drive a wedge between Selena and her husband, Chris Perez. The band had an annual party for their friends and family, and Yolanda, like, kept an eye on Selena and Chris all night. She watched them move from group to group, chatting away, and when they finally separated for a minute, Yolanda took her chance. She pulled Selena aside and told her that Chris vandalized the restaurant bathroom. This was, of course, not true. She was just trying to start a fight. But like I mentioned before, this wasn't the first time that Chris did something like this. It was only a year before that he had gotten drunk and trashed the hotel room. So Selena confronted Chris and asked him if he was the one that vandalized the bathroom. Chris was like, I've literally been next to you all night except for this one brief moment. How could I have vandalized the bathroom? So Selena was like, okay. And she and Chris just went back to the party. Yolanda was pissed, though. She could just not believe that Selena would trust Chris over her. She worried that if Chris turned against her, he would be able to convince Selena to do the same, and she could not let that happen. So she had to find another way to remain Selena's number one. By this point, Yolanda had been in Selena's life for three years. Three years ago, Yolanda had an entirely different life. She was working two jobs as a nurse, had no money, no friends. Now she was best friends and personal assistant to a superstar, managing two boutiques, and Yolanda was holding on to all that with her dear life. The more she gained, the more paranoid she became about losing it all. She could not allow anybody to risk ruining her relationship with Selena, so she fired anybody who might badmouth her. And then she went as far as to sabotage her marriage, and all the while, she pretended to be a great friend who was there for her. People tried to warn Selena, and there were rumors about Yolanda going around, but it seems like Selena was in denial. Yolanda had been her friend and trusted business advisor for three years. So whenever she heard things, she just kind of brushed them off. In September of 1994, Selena met Ricardo Martinez, a doctor who lived in Monterey, Mexico. Selena wanted to expand the number of boutiques, and she wanted to open up one of her shops in Monterey. Ricardo Martinez said that he had contacts in Mexico who could help Selena grow her business. He was also a plastic surgeon, and allegedly, she went to him for liposuction. Depending on the source, it's unclear whether she actually got lipo, or if maybe she was just consulting with him about it. She was only 22, and she didn't seem to need lipo. Anyway, Ricardo Martinez became a business advisor to Selena, even though her family was pretty sure that he was just the fan who was trying to get into the, in the pictures with her. This guy will become more important later on in the story. Selena ended up asking Yolanda to help her out because she wasn't actually fluent in Spanish, but Yolanda was. So she had Yolanda travel with her to the business meetings and stuff to help translate. Yolanda seemed like she really needed to feel wanted and needed at this time. She needed constant validation that she was number one in Selena's eyes. So she would, like, test her. Whenever Selena was in San Antonio, Yolanda would try to go everywhere with her. If she couldn't manage to tag along... She would call Selena at all hours of the night and insist that they needed to leave for Mexico right away for a business meeting or something. If Selena turned her down, Yolanda would get mad. Yolanda realized that this wasn't really working, so she started being all sweet and mousy to Selena again. She bought her a fancy-ass gift. It was a gold ring with diamonds in it and an S engraved in it three times. Selena loved it. But as it turns out, Yolanda actually charged the ring to Selena's corporate business account. So Selena really paid for it herself, and it was like a $3,000 ring. By this time, Yolanda had fired pretty much half of the staff. 
Those that were left started to confront Abraham about her shitty management and her firing everybody left and right. And not only that, but the business's paperwork wasn't making any sense. There was money missing and charges unaccounted for. And then Abraham started getting complaints from members of the fan club who weren't receiving the promised merch. Abraham started digging into the paperwork and what he found shocked him. Yolanda had embezzled thousands of dollars from Selena. In March 1995, Abraham, Selena, and Suzette had a meeting with Yolanda. Yolanda didn't know what it was going to be about, but Abraham came right out with it, and he demanded answers. Every time they asked her, Yolanda just kept saying, I don't know, all mousy. Every time they asked, every question they asked, she would just repeat, I don't know. Abraham fired her and threatened to sue her. Suzette screamed at her and called her a liar and a thief. Yolanda just kept looking at Selena, only caring about what she thought. Selena just looked at her, disappointed. Yolanda had lost everything. Everything she was afraid of was coming true. She was going to have to go live with her parents again and become the nobody from her past. She was absolutely determined to fix this. The next day, she went back to Q Productions, which is the company that Abraham had built, and she was immediately kicked off the premises. On March 10th, 1995, Selena removed Yolanda's name from the boutique's bank account and Yolanda was replaced as fan club president by a woman named Irene Herrera. Since she couldn't get to Selena, Yolanda then stole the company's financial records and disappeared. It wasn't long before Selena came looking for her. On March 11th, 1995, Yolanda went to a gun shop. She confidently went up to the counter and asked for help. She told the employee that she was a private home nurse and needed protection from a patient's family who threatened her. He gladly helped her pick out a firearm and complete her paperwork, and told her to come back three days later after the background check. Meanwhile, the Quintanillas tried calling her, but she refused to answer. March 13, 1995, Yolanda drove to Corpus Christi and checked into the Sand and Sea Motel. At the time, Selena was in Miami, Florida, but Abraham believes that this would have been the first attempt to kill her. When Selena got back into town, Yolanda called her and they agreed to meet up in a parking lot of a restaurant about 25 miles away from Corpus Christi. Yolanda hopped into Selena's car, excited to see her, but Selena was colder than she had anticipated. She demanded the records. Yolanda gave her some of the documents, but she held on to a few of the important ones. Yolanda then told Selena that she took the documents out of fear for her own safety, saying that Abraham had been calling her and threatening her. She said, maybe I should work somewhere else. This is too much for me. It's believed that this was just reverse psychology and that she was hoping that Selena would be like, no, no, I need you. Selena needed the business records, so she told Yolanda that she did need her for the business in Mexico. Selena told her that she could remain in charge of the business affairs there in Mexico. And honestly, that's probably the only reason that Yolanda didn't kill her right then. Yolanda lit up. And then she said, do you want to see something? She then reached into her handbag and pulled out the gun and showed it to Selena. She told her that she got it for protection. Selena freaked the fuck out and she told her, take it back. So Yolanda ended up going back the next day and returning the gun. Now that things seemed to be cool with Selena, she really didn't need it. But over the next couple of weeks, Yolanda kind of started to get, get vibes from Selena and she started to really analyze that conversation. And she was suddenly starting to doubt if Selena really meant what she said about needing her. On March 26th, Yolanda stole bank statements and a perfume sample from one of the boutiques. The next day, she went back to the gun shop and repurchased the same gun that she had just returned. 
She then asked Lena to meet her at the motel room alone. This is believed to be her second attempt to kill Selena. What happened was the news got out that Selena was going to that motel and she ended up being mobbed by fans. Abraham believes that her fans literally saved her that day because there were too many witnesses for Yolanda to have killed her. According to Abraham, the third attempt to kill Selena was during Saldivar's trip to Monterey, Mexico in the last week of March. Dr. Ricardo Martinez, he was the plastic surgeon and business advisor for, Mar for uh, Selena that was helping her in Mexico. He says that Yolanda called him crying hysterically and saying that she had been raped. This was on March 29th, 1995. The next day, Yolanda again called him, and he says that the phone call sounded like somebody was trying to snatch the phone away from her. On this same day, March 30th, Yolanda returned from her Monterey trip and she checked into the Days Inn Motel. Ricardo Martinez allegedly sent one of his employees to Yolanda's motel room to check on her, but when he got there, they found that she had just left. Yolanda contacted Selena and told her that she had been raped in Mexico. According to Abraham, this was the last message that they received from Yolanda, and he believes that this claim was her new alibi. Yolanda asked Selena to come visit her at the motel room alone. However, her husband Chris accompanied her. According to Chris, he waited by his truck as Selena went inside and met up with Yolanda by herself. Selena went in and asked for the stolen documents. Yolanda broke down in tears and told her that she had been sexually assaulted in Mexico that morning. She showed her some clothes that she had ripped up and told her that she was wearing them while she was raped. Selena offered to take her to the hospital, but Yolanda didn't want to go. Selena seemed really skeptical and she left, which made Yolanda panic. As Chris was driving them back to their house, Selena noticed that Yolanda had failed to give her the correct bank statements that she needed. Yolanda tried contacting Selena through her pager. Apparently, she changed her mind and now desperately wanted Selena to take her to a hospital that night. She told her that she was bleeding profusely because of the rape. Abraham believes that this was Yolanda's attempt to try to get Selena to go back to the hotel by herself. But Chris told her it's way too late and he didn't want her to go out alone that late at night. What Chris didn't know was that Selena actually agreed to meet Yolanda the next morning and take her to the hospital. Some point during that day, Selena noticed that the perfume sample had been missing, so she contacted Leonard Wong, who was the person who had made them for her. According to Wong, Selena told him, well, I'm going to see Yolanda tomorrow, so I'll pick up the perfume sample then. She also allegedly told another employee that she was expecting to fire Yolanda. Selena went back to Yolanda's motel and picked her up and took her to the hospital. There, Yolanda was examined, and it was found that she had no evidence of any assault. At this point, Selena was convinced that the whole story was made up. The medical staff did notice that Yolanda showed symptoms of depression, and Yolanda ended up telling a doctor that she had bled a little bit. The doctor noticed that Selena was kind of mad at this, and kind of said something like, You told me you were bleeding profusely. While driving back to the motel, Selena told Yolanda it would be best if they stayed apart for a while to avoid upsetting Abraham. According to Dr. Ricardo Martinez, Selena tried to contact him that morning, but he couldn't speak on the phone because he was performing a surgery. At 10 o'clock that morning, Abraham contacted Chris to find out where Selena was. She was supposed to record a song at Q Productions that morning, and she never got there. Chris called Selena's cell phone and reminded her of the recording. She told him she had forgotten all about the session and that she was taking care of one last item of business, and then she would be at Q Productions right after that. This was the last telephone call that Selena answered and was the last time that Chris heard her voice. 
Selena and Yolanda got back to the motel, and that's when Selena demanded her financial documents. Yolanda, again, gave her some of the papers, but not all of them. Selena, at this point, was just fucking desperate to get her documents and get the fuck away from her, so she grabbed Yolanda's handbag and dumped out all its contents. Among those contents was the gun. The gun just fucking fell out of the purse. They both froze and stared at it for a moment, and then Yolanda lunged for it. What happens next has been heavily debated over the last 26 years. Of course, the only two people who were there for this were Yolanda and Selena, and Yolanda's a fucking liar, so. But according to Yolanda, she grabbed the gun and initially she put it to her own head. She was desperate, and she said that if Selena wouldn't take her back, she was going to be the one to sever the relationship. She says that she told Selena that she's done working for her, but Selena insisted that she needs her for her boutique. Yolanda refused and told Selena to leave right then or she would shoot herself. According to Yolanda, Selena went to shut the door so they could continue talking, and Yolanda gestured for her to leave it open, and at that moment, the gun accidentally went off. Most people don't believe a word Yolanda says. What a lot of people believe is that Selena didn't go to shut the door, she was actually just getting ready to walk out and leave for good. And then Yolanda snapped and shot her. What we do know is that Yolanda shot Selena in the back, in the lower right shoulder, severing an artery and causing a massive loss of blood. The bullet went through her chest and splattered blood all over the motel wall. Selena stumbled her way through the hotel and Yolanda just kind of stood there and watched. Remember, Yolanda's a trained nurse, and she's just standing there watching Selena bleed out and struggle to get help. Selena was seen clutching her chest, screaming, Help me, help me, I've been shot. Then Yolanda, like, snaps out of it and starts chasing after Selena, pointing the gun at her and yelling, Bitch! Selena made it into the hotel lobby. She crashed into a door, which she had to push through, and it took all of her strength. After she was able to get through, she instantly collapsed. According to a guy named Carlos Morales, who was waiting outside of the motel, he heard screaming and he turned and looked and he saw Selena running towards him. She grabbed him and screamed, they're going to shoot me again. The motel receptionist recognized her right away and saw all the blood. So she ran to her side and Selena told her, Yolanda, 158, and then she passed out. Her fist had been clenched and it had now fallen weak and revealed that she was clutching the ring that Yolanda gave her. At some moment during all of this, Selena managed to take off her ring for some reason. The blood trail from the scene of the shooting to where Selena collapsed was 392 feet long. The receptionist called 911 while looking up who was in room 158. She told the operator that it was Yolanda Saldivar who shot Selena. A motel employee had actually seen her leave the room with the wrapped towel, and it was believed that Yolanda's plans were to go to Q Productions to shoot Abraham. People from the hotel staff were frantically working to try to stop the flow of blood. Selena's condition began to deteriorate rapidly. And Selena just kept screaming at them, telling them, lock the door, she's going to come back, she's going to shoot me again. The staff tried to talk to Selena, but they noticed that she was beginning to lose consciousness. They said that she was moaning and she was moving less. She was getting weaker and weaker. They noticed that her eyes had rolled back and she had gone limp. The ambulance arrived just two minutes after she was shot. Her heartbeat was now very slow. A paramedic performed CPR to keep her blood circulating. Paramedic Richard Fredrickson said it was too late when he arrived in the lobby. 
He found a thick pool of blood from her neck to her knees, all the way around on both sides of her body. He could not locate a pulse. When he placed his fingers on her neck, all he felt were muscle twitches. One of the paramedics tried inserting an intravenous needle into her, but her veins had collapsed because of the massive blood loss and low or no blood pressure, which made the insertion extremely difficult. They rushed her to the hospital. Yolanda was actually hopping into her car right as the ambulance was pulling up, and right behind it were police cars. They blocked off all the exits, so Yolanda was trapped. I know there's no use in trying to understand this woman, but I can only imagine that in this moment she had to have been like, oh fuck, what have I done? So now Yolanda gets back into her truck and she's just like, what the fuck do I do now? I mean, her life is like beyond over now. So Yolanda's in her truck now in the parking lot and she's just staring at her gun, just staring off thinking about what to do next, when all of a sudden a police officer approached her car. He drew his gun and ordered her out of the truck, but she did not comply. She actually put her car in reverse and backed up and parked adjacent to two cars. So her truck was now blocked in by the police vehicle. Then Yolanda picked up the pistol and pointed it at her right temple and told him that she was going to kill herself. The officer put his hands in the air and started backing away from her truck. They set up a perimeter a distance from her truck. The lead officer, Larry Young, didn't want to spook her and cause her to kill herself. So he kept his distance and he called her on her cell phone. She answered the phone completely hysterical, saying that she didn't want to live anymore. He tried everything to get her not to kill herself. And she was freaking out, sobbing. I Meanwhile, when paramedics delivered Selena to the Corpus Christi Memorial Hospital at 12 p.m., Selena's pupils were fixed and dilated. There was no evidence of neurological function and she had no vital signs. Doctors were able to establish an erratic heartbeat long enough to transfer her to the trauma room. There, doctors attempted blood transfusions in an attempt to reestablish blood circulation after opening Selena's chest and finding massive internal bleeding. Her right lung was damaged, her collarbone was shattered, and her veins were completely emptied of blood. They administered drugs into her heart and applied pressure to her wounds. Dr. Lewis Elkins said a pencil-sized artery leading from her heart had been cut in two by the hollow point bullet and that six units of blood from the transfusion had spilled out from Selena's circulatory system. After 50 minutes, the doctors determined that the damage was irreparable. At 1.05 p.m., Selena was pronounced dead from blood loss and cardiac arrest. Apparently, if the bullet had been just one or two millimeters higher or lower, she would have survived. Selena's religious beliefs became an issue shortly before she died when the physicians decided to give her blood transfusions. Her father was horrified because, remember, they were Jehovah's Witnesses, and they don't believe in that. Abraham was quoted as saying, Selena would not have wanted that. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that God alone is the source of life-giving blood and that humans should not intervene when blood is shed. Selena had just started to study the Bible, but she hadn't officially been a Jehovah's Witness. It's believed that there are some things that Selena couldn't really fully embrace, 
for one, Jehovah's Witnesses believe in modesty and Selena wasn't really prepared to change her way of dressing, for example. So it doesn't seem like she fully embraced being a Jehovah's Witness yet, but that was what the family was teaching and that was what she was studying before she died. Either way, Selena never publicly discussed religion in any context. As Larry Young is trying to talk to Yolanda on the phone, he was trying everything to get her to surrender. He even offered to let her see her family, but nothing was working. She just would not get out of that truck. And this went on for hours. During this whole standoff, Yolanda ends up telling the police that Abraham was actually to blame for all of this. She claimed that Abraham had been threatening her and she got the gun to protect herself from him, and that Selena put her up in the motel to protect her from him. It didn't make sense, but Officer Young let her get it all out. He pretty much let her keep talking, whatever he could do to make sure she didn't snap. While they're on the phone, Yolanda heard Larry's radio through the phone, and what she heard was a news broadcast announcing that Selena didn't make it. They hadn't actually told her this yet. Up until this point, Yolanda was still holding on to hope that there was still some chance of reconciling with Selena. Larry tried to act like he didn't know about it, or maybe it was just a rumor. But when she heard it on the radio, she knew. And she lost it. She started crying out that she killed the only friend she ever had in her entire life. After six hours of the standoff, Yolanda finally agreed to give herself up. But when she got out of the car and started walking, she saw a police officer pointing a rifle at her. So she panicked and ran right back to her truck, picked up the revolver, and pointed it at her head again. She would remain here for another three hours. After a total of nine hours in this standoff, so it's like 9 p.m. now, Larry finally convinced her again to surrender. He promised to shield her face from the cameras, but when she got out of the car, again, she panicked and ran back to her truck. It took another half hour of coaxing before she finally came out. At 9.30 p.m. on March 31, 1995, Yolanda finally left her truck and surrendered. Officer Young did indeed shield her face like he promised, as he escorted her to a police car. Yolanda was interrogated by a detective that evening. She supposedly asked for a lawyer, but was not given one. She says that the detective refused her food, water, and the use of a restroom. She had been starving and exhausted since it had been 11 hours since the beginning of the standoff. She then confessed to deliberately killing Selena before signing a written confession swearing to the truth of her statement. Yolanda then got to see her father for a few brief minutes before she was taken back to her cell. Yolanda retained a lawyer named Douglas Tinker. He was known for winning really difficult cases and was determined to get her acquitted. The opposing counsel was District Attorney Carlos Valdez, who happened to be a neighbor of the Quintanillas. This was also an election year, so, so he kind of felt like he had to deliver justice to Selena. The news of Selena's death deeply affected the Hispanic community. Many people traveled thousands of miles to visit her home, her boutiques, and the crime scene. More than 60,000 fans went to Corpus Christi to mourn her death. There was a fence around the home, and it was quickly turned into a shrine. Selena's fans wanted Yolanda to get the maximum punishment, even a death sentence, which wasn't applicable in this case. But people in Texas did not care. They were pissed at Yolanda. In August 1995, Yolanda's preliminary hearings began. The prosecution claimed that Yolanda was so enraged by the accusations of embezzlement that she killed Selena in revenge. Then the defense spoke. 
people figured that the defense would claim insanity since Yolanda actually signed a sworn confession, but her attorney actually promised to prove it was an accident. Tinker, that's her lawyer, he made a motion to suppress the confession on the grounds that it was obtained illegally. This wasn't such a leap since she didn't have a lawyer present, so nobody really knows what happened before she signed the confession. The detective's notes from the interrogation also disappeared. He claimed he threw them away after getting her confession, and he claims that this is the normal process after getting somebody's confession. Tinker brought in another officer who testified that he heard Yolanda say, quote, it was an accident during the interrogation, but the detective chose not to include that in his notes because he didn't believe her. This is one of those things that's like, dude, I know you try to help yourself, but it's just going to fuck everybody in the end. Tinker filed for a change of venue because there was no way that Yolanda could get a fair trial in Selena's hometown. People had already decided that she was guilty. So they moved the venue to Houston, but the confession would stand as evidence. Yolanda spent six months in jail before her trial. She became increasingly depressed, refusing to eat, and lost 50 pounds. She made up a story about having breast cancer, which wasn't true. It was like she wanted the public to feel sorry for her. When it was revealed that she didn't actually have cancer, she appeared controlling and manipulative. When it was time for Yolanda to enter her plea, everybody listened carefully. She got up and swore, not guilty. On October 23, 1995, less than three hours after closing remarks, the jury reached a decision. Yolanda hyperventilated while she waited. The judge then read the verdict. Guilty of first-degree murder. Yolanda started sobbing. Her parents broke down in sobs. The Quintanilla family, on the other hand, barely showed any emotion and they just left through the side doors. Outside of the court, traffic came to a stop as a street festival suddenly erupted. Selena's music was bumping and people were dancing in the street. Yolanda still had to be sentenced, though, but she could hear the celebrations outside and she knew that people were going to want her to suffer. The jury took a couple days to decide on her sentence. Ultimately, on October 25, 1995, she was sentenced to life in prison. Less than two weeks later, she agreed to her first interview. It was on November 2, 1995 with journalist Maria Araras. In this interview, she said something that she hadn't said before. Yolanda was now claiming that Selena told her a secret, and Yolanda was determined to take it to her grave. There's never been any mention of a secret ever before this, but Yolanda insists that this secret was the catalyst in the events leading to Selena's death, and when the secret's out, it'll exonerate her and reveal who is truly responsible for Selena's death. I will say, though, a lot of people don't respect this journalist, um, Maria Araras, and they don't respect her book either. Her book is called Selena's Secret, and it just kind of seems like, kind of like gossip. Like, there's a lot that she's saying there, and without citing any sources, and she also seems to th sympathize with Yolanda a lot, which I can imagine is another reason that people don't like it. She also talks a lot about herself in the book. Like, she talks about how the airport was such an awful experience and how great her own hair looked when she interviewed Yolanda. It's weird. It's bonkers. But let me tell you this one claim she makes. And before anybody jumps down my throat, I'm not saying that this is something I believe. But it has been reported by somebody on the inside, and I think it's important to tell you the whole story. Yolanda claims that Selena was planning on running away with Dr. Ricardo Martinez, which she says explains why there was a suitcase and a work permit found at the crime scene. 
So just to recap, Dr. Ricardo Martinez was Selena's financial advisor in Mexico, and he was also her physician. He supposedly removed a contraceptive implant from Selena's arm and may have later performed liposuction on her. According to some sources, or maybe I should say rumors, Selena visited Martinez in Monterey, quote, frequently sometimes wearing a disguise. With these rumors of an affair going around, Yolanda was interviewed again, and she was videotaped saying that Selena was completely in love with Dr. Martinez. Supposedly, Selena met Ricardo Martinez in 1994. He offered to help her with her business, even though her family kind of thought, he's just trying to get into the spotlight with you. According to Yolanda, Dr. Martinez started sending flowers to Selena's hotel room, and Yolanda warned her that he might have unprofessional intentions. So now, after Selena's death, Yolanda has been talking about a mythical videotape, one that supposedly locked up in a safe in some undisclosed bank in Mexico. And supposedly, this tape is supposed to clear her name from any wrongdoing. And according to Yolanda, this isn't just any ordinary tape. It's a sex tape. Dun-dun-dun! This sex tape, according to Yolanda, was being used by Ricardo in order to blackmail Selena because he wanted her to leave Chris and run away with him to Brazil. Ricardo, of course, says that Yolanda's claims are nothing but delusions, which is why in 2012 he decided to come forward and clear his name. In a special interview in 2012, Dr. Martinez admitted to having an affair with Selena. He revealed the details of his relationship with her, admitting to having been deeply in love with her. Selena's family, including her widower, Chris Perez, deny that the affair ever occurred. For one, they've stated that Ricardo Martinez really liked the attention that he got from hanging out with Selena, because he got his own little chunk of spotlight from hanging out with her. So it's possible that he's just trying to keep himself in that spotlight, pretty much just like Yolanda did. Also, Selena had had dinner with her mom and her sister one night not long before she was killed, and she enthusiastically announced to them that as soon as she got back from her L.A. concert, that she and Chris were going to start trying to have a family. This was apparently confirmed by a doctor's appointment that she had made for the following week. Anyway, everyone in Selena's circle insists that Selena and Chris were not having relationship troubles, they were very much in love, and had a lot of plans to go forward. The English crossover album that Selena had been working on was released after her death on July 18, 1995 by EMI Latin and EMI Records. It was called Dreaming of You, and it was predominantly in Spanish but included popular hits in English like Dreaming of You and I Could Fall in Love. It became the first and only Spanish-language and Tejano recording to debut at number one on the U.S. Billboard 200 chart and the first EMI Latin release to do so. It sold 175,000 copies on its first day of release in the U.S., which was then a record for a female vocalist. It also won Album of the Year at the 1996 Tejano Music Awards, and it won Female Pop Album of the Year at the third annual Billboard Latin Music Awards. Jennifer Lopez was cast to play Selena in the 1997 biopic film about her life. This choice drew a lot of criticism because of Lopez's Puerto Rican ancestry. Interestingly, Salma Hayek was actually approached to play Selena first, but she felt like it was too soon. After the film's release, fans changed their mind about Jennifer Lopez. She became instantly famous after this film. Here's another interesting fact about this movie. There was actually another actress who had auditioned to play the role of Selena. Her name was Gloria De La Cruz. In April 1996, 
Gloria's body was found in a dumpster after having been raped in her grandmother's garage. She was then suffocated, doused in gasoline, and set on fire. In 2017, Chris Perez shared a copy of his marriage certificate with Selena to commemorate their 25th year anniversary. He said, Obviously, Selena's impact on the world is still being felt today as it deserves to be. Thanks for sharing your pictures of the event to my messages and on my timeline. On another note, it's hard to believe that today marks 25 years since Selena and I decided that the only way to be together was to run away and get married at 20 and 22 years old in secret. I saw on Facebook just a few days ago that Chris Perez made a really cute post where he said, I love the day after Halloween when I can go through all the pictures I've been tagged in where people dress up as Selena and me. I thought it was so cute. To this day, she's still an absolute idol, a fashion icon and a true goddess to the Latino community. I wonder if she ever could have guessed that people would be dressing up as her 30 years after her death. Selena was inducted into the Billboard Latin Music Hall of Fame, the Hard Rock Cafe's Hall of Fame, and the South Texas Music Hall of Fame all in 1995. In 2001, she was inducted into the Tejano Music Hall of Fame. And in 2017, she received a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. The unveiling ceremony of her star was attended by around 4,500 fans, which was the largest ever crowd for an unveiling ceremony at the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Yolanda will be eligible for her first opportunity at parole in the year 2025. That's only like three years away, my dudes. She maintains that the events of that day were an accident and that she always has and always will love Selena. She says she never wanted to hurt her. From what I can gather... Yolanda has had good behavior in prison, so it's possible that she could be released on parole in 2025. However, it's also a huge concern for law enforcement if she's released, because a lot of people want her dead. Before the trial was over, gangs were actually making bets on who would kill Yolanda first if she were deemed innocent. Nearly 30 years may have passed, but it's not enough, man. We're all still pissed. Also, I checked, and there are a ton of petitions out there where people are trying to get signatures to keep Yolanda's ass in prison. You can literally just Google keep Yolanda Saldivar in prison and you can take your pick of petitions. Abraham has stated that as Jehovah's Witnesses, they don't celebrate deaths or birthdays and they don't want people to think that they're behind the festivities. However, they are of course glad that people continue to remember Selena's legacy. He added, it's crazy. It grows every day with events everywhere, but we're not organizing them. Our family never got together every day on the day of her murder because there's nothing to celebrate. We remember our daughter every single day. We don't need a special day to remember her. Before I wrap things up, I want to make a quick request of you guys. I need your help in planning a future episode. I would like to do an episode or two on very special episodes. If you don't know what that is, it's like it's something that kind of came into popularity in the 1980s in comedy sitcoms. So like these would so, like, these would be comedy sitcoms. So, these would be, like, comedy sitcoms, but they would have one or two very special episodes, which were episodes that had really dark, mature themes, which was, of course, unusual for the typical lightheartedness of these shows. I'll give you an example. In Full House, there's an episode where DJ, who's, like, 12 years old at the time, and she struggles with an eating disorder. Or in Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, there's the infamous scene where Will Smith is crying to his Uncle Phil about how his dad didn't want him. There are a lot of shows that did this going back as early as the 1960s, like Different Strokes and All in the Family. So I'm asking you guys for suggestions on your favorite or most memorable very special episodes. If you've got one that you'd like to share, send me an email at ddwest.brokenlimelight.com 
and I'll give you a shout out when we cover your very special episode. Well, that's it for now. I hope you guys found this episode insightful and hopefully I brought something new to the conversation about Selena and maybe also about concert etiquette. Shout out to the podcast Female Criminals for being the only really, really great source for this case, especially regarding Yolanda. This was the only main source that I found bountiful new information that wasn't super readily available on Google. They did a two-part episode on Yolanda Saldivar, and they have way more details that I didn't get into. If you want to check them out, I highly recommend them. Don't forget, if you'd like to see detailed photos, videos, or notes about this episode, head on over to BrokenLimelight.com. Each episode is listed there along with the written transcript and ways to listen. If you want to hear a particular case covered, you can always email me at ddwest.brokenlimelight.com or you can leave me a comment under the Contact Me tab on BrokenLimelight.com. If you have a strong opinion or a question about this episode, leave a comment on the bottom of the episode page so we can interact. As always, thanks a bunch for listening. Until next time. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Today's episode is brought to you by Hunt a Killer. Hunt a Killer is a monthly mystery subscription box that's truly one of a kind. It's basically like a true crime case in a box. It comes with case files, codes to decipher, detailed backgrounds about the suspects and the victims. There's evidence for you to evaluate. It tells an immersive story of a whole crime case from beginning to end. It's kind of like an escape room in a box. You can do this by yourself, or you can team up with a buddy, or you can do it for like a game night or even a date night. You can take a little break from technology and immerse yourself fully into this box. Or if you prefer to be a more high-tech investigator, you can join online communities and talk to other Hunt a Killer players about clues and stuff. Hunt a Killer also shares part of the proceeds to the Cold Case Foundation, so your purchase actually helps with real-life cold cases. The best news is that Broken Limelight listeners get 20% off of their first subscription box. So go get started now at huntakiller.com and don't forget to use the code BROKENLIMELIGHT to get your 20% off. That's Broken Limelight, all one word.